you, Steve. I've been with Crew for 19 years, 10 years here at UConn. So, and when Ryan asked and told me that he would be on vacation, I was even more excited to step in for him, knowing that he was getting some rest. So, I actually want to start by spending a few minutes just to pray for him as he's away. Uh, I can't imagine the. Uh, the challenges and the work that he has put in over the last few months, and I imagine that this time of rest is, is very needed, and so I want to pray that it would be that for him. Father, thank you uh, that you have called Ryan here to shepherd your people. Thank you for the ways that he has worked and labored tirelessly on behalf of these people, and even more so on behalf of your kingdom. And I pray that uh, these next days would provide all that he needs, that there would be a renewing of vision, uh, a strengthening of body and mind, and a heart that draws wholeheartedly to you. And I pray that, that we as your people would be a people that support and care and love for those you have uh, set apart to shepherd us. Lord, we pray that this time would provide vision for Ryan and in the way he leads for the next five, ten years down the road. And I pray that you would bless us this morning, that your word would speak powerfully to our hearts, to our minds, that you would draw us near to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I have to be careful this morning because I was told... Because there's a little lake next door, if I mess anything up this morning, I get heaved. And then someone said, just make sure you take the mic off first. <laughs> All right, well, hopefully I won't mess anything up this morning. Ryan asked me to speak on the topic of what I've learned from 2020 so far. Uh, and you didn't bring coolers with you, so I don't think you planned ahead for how long we were going to be here, given what I've learned from 2020 so far. Some of what I learned, I think, probably won't be new or news to you, but maybe in the spirit of uh, tasting something again for the first time. And I actually want to start by looking at a verse, a couple of verses that don't often get mentioned or spoken of in September. And you'll know why in a second here. John chapter 2, verse 8, says, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for I bring you good news of great joy, good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. That phrase, I bring you good news of great joy. What was the good news of great joy that these angels heralded to the shepherds? It was good news of Jesus. Good news of his birth, good news of what his life would accomplish on behalf of men and women like you and me, what he would accomplish through his life, death, resurrection, 
what he would accomplish through the shedding of his blood on our behalf, that we might be forgiven of our sins, cleansed of our iniquities, and restored to right relationship by faith. These angels brought good news of great joy. And that good news of great joy was Jesus himself. One of the things I'm learning this year, I'm learning more and more how good the good news of the gospel is and the fact that I need not be ashamed of it. The good news isn't something to be ashamed of because it's good news. The good news that these angels proclaimed to the shepherds was good news of Jesus. And it's Jesus who is the only one who can transform our broken, sinful hearts and through that transformation impact communities and ultimately the world. It's the good news of Jesus that can change the heart of stone into a heart of flesh. It's the message that we never need to be ashamed to share. I'm learning more and more how good the good news of the gospel is and that I need not be ashamed of it. Now if we look back on 2020, when we think of all the woes that we are seeing, experiencing in our world, the good news, the gospel, Jesus is what we need. And I think unfortunately, and this is true of me, there are times in my approach to the things that we are seeing and experiencing in the world, what I say, the way I act, the attitudes I hold, sometimes communicate that what I really think is the gospel is insufficient or at worst, inappropriate in solving the problems that we see in the world around us. And yet, the good news is good news because it is good news of Jesus and we not, need not be ashamed of it. In fact, I think our strategies need to be rooted in the reality that Jesus became sin so that we might become the righteousness of Christ. The way we approach human trafficking, the way we approach sex trafficking, the way we approach the many isms in the world around us, the way we address poverty, the way we bless the world by upholding biblical principles for relationships that are for our good and God's glory, the way we express care for life from the littlest unborn boy or girl to the seasoned veterans of life, the way we approach all these things need to be rooted in the reality that Jesus became sin so that we might become the righteousness of Christ and that this is the best news that we need not be ashamed of. Now, as I think about how good the good news is, I recognize my need to be connected to it in increasing measure. And this leads to the next few things that I've been learning. If you have a Bible, I'd love for you to turn with me to John chapter 15. John chapter 15 presents, actually 14, 15, 16, uh, and 17 present either conversations that Jesus is having with the disciples, things that he's praying for his disciples, things that he is exhorting them to, and by extension, us 
as well. And what I'm seeing in my appreciation, my increasing appreciation for the gospel as the best news is my need to abide in a variety of ways. So I want to read John chapter 15 for you as I try to keep things from blowing away here. John chapter 15, Jesus speaking. He says, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be given you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for, every, for everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. This is my command, love each other. Now there's a lot in this passage and we could spend weeks going into the depths of it. But there are a few things that have stood out to me that Jesus has said that are part of what I've been learning throughout this year. And Jesus starts out, by saying, I am the true vine. Now, I want you to make an observation with me here. Jesus doesn't say, I am the vine. He says, I am the true vine. What does that mean? One of the things that I'm learning is that Jesus is the unfailing, unwavering, unparalleled source of life to be vitally connected to. When Jesus says he's the true vine, he's making a contrast between himself and Israel. Israel was referred to as the vine and were to be a blessing. If you look back at uh, Genesis chapter 12 and God's call to Abraham, I will make you great, I will make your name great, your descendants will be as vast as the stars in the sky, and all peoples will what? Be blessed because of you. Israel was to be the vine through which 
the world experienced God's blessing. But Jesus is saying, I'm the true vine. And he's distinguishing and contrasting himself with Israel. Where they were to be the vine, they inevitably came up short. And I want to look at a few Old Testament passages just to illustrate this for you. Psalm 80. You brought a vine out of Egypt. So speaking to God. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. And took and it took root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. Isaiah chapter 5. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared its stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Jeremiah 2, I had planted you like a choice vine of sound and reliable stock. How then did you turn against me into a corrupt wild vine? Jesus is saying that he is the unfailing, unwavering, unparalleled source of life to be vitally connected to. Where Israel came up short in being that for the people around them, Jesus never comes up short. And I'm learning more and more of how vitally connected I need to be to Jesus. Recently, I was doing some tree work for my parents and there was a tree that had come down, kind of split off, it had two trunks, maybe like this one here, and one of the trunks had split off, and the other was still standing, but the one that had split off had some threads, some fibers of wood still connected to the trunk. And though it had been down on the ground for months, the leaves were still green. Even though it had broken off, not completely, even though it had fell down, there was still a vital connection that that trunk was experiencing to the rest of the tree. It was still getting the nourishment, the water, the sunlight that it needed. So that even though it had been laying on the ground, it was still very much alive. It was vitally connected to its source of life. And I'm learning... Jesus is the unfailing, unwavering, unparalleled source of life to be vitally connected to. Still in verse 1, Jesus says, so he calls himself the true vine, and he says, the Father is the gardener. Now hopefully in those passages from the Old Testament I just read, you saw a little bit of the work that God the Father did. He planted, he dug, he cleared stones. He tilled the ground. He made every, all the... All the circumstances just right for the vine to flourish. Now, many, uh, including my family, uh, in the midst of uh, quarantine, decided, let's try our hand at growing some things. Maybe we can have a garden that actually produces some food. Now, for some of you, it's like, yeah, we do this every year. Welcome, you bandwagger, bandwagoner. But we tried, and we invested a little money and invested a lot of sweat equity in creating some raised beds to grow some vegetables. And I'm happy to say we've been eating the fruit of our labor. 
But one of the things that I recognized that because of the money and the hours and time and sweat I put into it, I was really invested in these gardens doing well. I have never pulled so many weeds in my life. I have never watered so much. I have never taken care of plants in the way that I have over the last few months. I was the gardener fully invested in the fruitfulness and flourishing of these plants. My father is the gardener. I'm learning that God, as the gardener, is fully invested in the fruitfulness and flourishing of his people. He has laid the groundwork for his people to flourish and to be a blessing to the world around us. Now verse 2, he cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. If you look farther down, he refers to this pruning as well in verses 5 through 8. This doesn't seem pleasant, right? This active investment, this active work of God as the gardener, as Jesus working in our lives, there is a pruning process that we experience. Not often pleasant, sometimes painful, but I'm learning that God's pruning is a reason for praise. God's pruning is a reason for praise. Hebrews talks about discipline in, in the life of God, a follower of Jesus as well. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but rather painful. But in the end, it produces a harvest of righteousness for those who are trained by it. Jesus isn't saying that pruning or discipline is pleasant. But it's for our good and for His glory. And I am learning to see His pruning work in my life as something that is a reason for praise. Because He goes on and on a number of occasions in this passage, He talks about the idea of fruit. Bearing fruit. Becoming more fruitful. Jesus' pruning work in my life is to take out that which is not producing fruit so that that which does produce fruit can flourish all the more. And that is what I want to be true of my life. I don't want to be an unfruitful, useless follower of Jesus. I want my life to produce fruit for the sake of Christ. And I'm learning that God's pruning is a reason for praise because it means that He loves me enough to work on me to work in me, to refine me, to transform me more and more. Now in verse 4, he brings up this idea of remaining. Your, your Bible might say abide. Verse 4, remain in me and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain or you abide in me. This word remain or abide is used 11 times just in this, this chapter. It must be something important that Jesus is trying to get across to us. Abide, remain. But what does it really mean? 
What does it mean when Jesus says to abide, to remain in me? Now I think it's this, that as Jesus calls us to remain, to abide, he is calling us to continue without fading. I have uh, this red golf shirt that I like. I think it looks good on me. I enjoy wearing it. It's comfortable. And I was wearing it at a meeting the other day, and two people commented on the pink shirt that I was wearing. I furrowed my brow. Uh, some of you may be comfortable wearing pink. I'm not. And now that this shirt appears to be pink, I had to go inside, take off the shirt, and put on a new one. Now, some of you are thinking that's ridiculous. Well, yes, there are a lot of idiosyncrasies in me. But that shirt, over time, because I liked it and wore it so much, and often wore it outside in the sun, it seems to be no longer red. It had faded to pink. In my relationship with the Lord, am I continuing without fading? Or are the things of the world of life beating down on me such that my relationship with the Lord is fading? Jesus' call to abide with him is a call to abide, to be with him in a way that does not fade that is not worn down by the things of life in the world, but rather those things encourage us to abide and continue without fading all the more. Let's, let's get practical. Because I think even that idea of Continuing without fading in some ways is still kind of out here. What does that look like? What does that mean? What do I do? Well, Jesus gives us some explanation and some instructions regarding that in the passage. And I would encourage you to read this over a few times over the course of this week. But the first thing I would say is that abiding is obeying. In verse 7, Jesus says, if you remain in me and my words remain in you. And then in verse 9 he says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. Verse 10, if you obey my commands, you will remain in my love. Abiding is obeying. Abiding is doing what God has said. Abiding is following God's word faithfully. And I'll be honest, this week I received an email from a group that was trying, and to their credit, as best they can to create a sense of community among God's people, trying to give people some tracks to run on in terms of relating to the Lord and relating with each other. And they were going to provide some passages of scripture to look through but the instructions in terms of the questions they wanted to, they, them to wrestle through really discouraged me. Because the first and foremost question that was presented was, what is Jesus saying to me? What is Jesus saying to me? And I think the first question, when it comes to abiding 
by obeying is not asking what is Jesus saying to me because I think the, the next step with that is what, is what do I think this means? I think the first step is what is Jesus saying? You see the difference there? What is Jesus saying to me puts the attention on me and what I think and what I feel and maybe even what I want it to say. Asking the question, what is Jesus saying, puts the attention on Jesus. What he says, what is in the text? Abiding is obeying what Jesus has said, what God's word has commanded us to do. Let me read it again. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love. I know it sounds pretty simple to me, yet I get it all convoluted in my own mind and often approach scripture by thinking, oh, what does this mean to me? What is this saying to me? And I miss the point that Jesus is saying something. And sometimes my own sinful nature tries to take what Jesus is saying and make it something else because maybe it feels better or maybe it's more comfortable or maybe it's more pleasant to the world around us. But abiding is obeying what Jesus has commanded. And I think approaching the scriptures with the question, what does the text say? Now ultimately as we do scripture study, we do come to the place of trying to interpret and then trying to apply, but those are not the first steps. The first step is what does the text say? What is Jesus commanding? What is he telling me to do? What is he prohibiting me from doing? And recognizing that unless there is some really clear and compelling contextual or content information that says, read it a different way, then I want to take him at his word and what he is saying and obey. To continue without fading, to abide is to obey what he said. Now, another practical thing. What does abiding look like or what is continuing without fading? I'd say it would mean abiding in his love. He brings up the idea of love a number of times throughout this passage. Abide in his love. Now, one of the popular sentiments today in our world is or ideas are self-love. And self-care. Underlying that is you're supposed to do what you need to do, sometimes at the expense of others, to love yourself. Jesus did not say in John chapter 15, remain in your love. Love yourself. No, he said remain in my love. Remain in my love. Part of how we remain in his love is by doing what he says, but also recognizing that he is able to love us far better, far stronger, more appropriately than we could ever love ourselves or care for ourselves. Where did Jesus go when he retreated from the masses? He went to the Father, to abide with his Father, to continue without fading in his relationship with the Father. 
Abide in his love. Remain in his love. Now, abiding is not necessarily the absence of activity. And I think we can sometimes put that in our minds. Like, I just need to cease everything so that I can abide. I don't think that's the call. Abiding is not necessarily the absence of activity, but the move to abide should cause us to evaluate our activities. Maybe there are things that we do that actually stand very much in the way of our ability to abide, to be with, to continue without fading, to obey, and to sit in Jesus' love. So the questions might be, am I doing too much? Am I taking on too much? Or do I find my worth in being busy and having full days? I think we can all recognize sometimes where we've had conversations with people and they're just listing off thing after thing after thing after thing that they do and how full their life is and how busy they are. And in my mind, I'm thinking you are finding your worth and your identity and how much you do and how busy you are. And I'm sorry for you. Because that is not where life and identity and worth and value come from. Am I doing too much? Am I taking on too much? Do I find my worth in being busy and having full days? Abiding is not necessarily the absence of activity, but evaluating, evaluating the activities that we do. Do they become a barrier to my abiding? But also in the midst of activity, the things that we do... Do we see God in those things as well? Now, I don't know what it is you all do for vocation, but abiding is seeing that your relationship with Christ enters into your vocation. Abiding with Christ impacts all your relationships. I was on a phone call earlier with some high school uh, earlier this week with some high school students, and they were asking this question: How how do we balance all the different things as we head off to the university? You know, we've got academics. We want to do social clubs, and for some of them, they'll they'll be athletes. And they're asking, you know, how do I maintain my relationship with the Lord in the midst of all these things? And I said, you're approaching the the question in the wrong way. Because what they were describing to me was taking different compartments of life, my academics, my social life, my family, my friends, my, my athletics, and they're, they're taking their relationship with the Lord as if, as if it's a salt shaker and sprinkling a little bit of Christianity on each of those compartments. And that is not the picture of abiding. The picture of abiding is more thinking of your life as a mug of hot water that when you drop that tea bag in, that tea seeps to every aspect of that mug. Abiding with Christ is the tea bag that seeps into everything you are, everything you do, everything you think, every attitude you have. Abiding in that way, allows you to abide even in the midst of activity. Now, last thing here, abiding is being with. So just in the way that I said abiding is not necessarily the absence of activity, 
I think there should be times where there is an absence of activity. Much like when Jesus went up on the mountain to pray and to be with his Father. This means concentrated, undistracted time with the Lord. Abiding is being with. When you think about your own household, for some of you, you have your spouse and your kids in the same household, or maybe you have an aging parent that lives with you as well. These are the people that you abide with in your abode. And there are times where you have concentrated, dedicated time just to be with them. And Jesus is saying, abide in me, abide with me. Set aside that dedicated, concentrated time to be with me. Because I love you better than you could love yourself. Because my commands are for your good and for my glory. And because I want you to be fruitful in your relationship with the Lord. And I want you to do all these things without fading. Jesus, we are grateful so grateful that you are the good news. That you came to seek and save the lost. That you came to call us to repentance. To turn from our wicked ways and turn to you. Jesus, we thank you that you became sin. Who knew no sin. So that we might become the righteousness of Christ. Jesus, we thank you that you loved us to the fullest degree by laying down your life on our behalf. And Lord, we recognize that sometimes the biggest obstacle between us and you and abiding in you is ourselves. And I pray that we would get out of the way and abide. And Lord, if there are people here in this parking lot this morning that have never made the decision to entrust their lives to you, to by faith say, Jesus, I need you to be my Savior. I pray that that would be something that happens this morning. That you would give them the courage and the faith to say, Jesus, I believe, I believe you came to die for me. I agree with you that I am a sinful person and I need your forgiveness. Would you forgive me would you come and abide in me and make me the kind of person you want me to be? And Jesus, as we approach your table and celebrate your death on the cross, I pray that we would be, we would be strengthened in our knowledge and in our experience of who you are and what you have done on our behalf. We might be reconciled to you. We pray all this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.